Welcome, everybody. I'm excited to have you and Downey with me here today as for another special uh, guest episode here. Before I start into it with him, though, I just want to remind you, as always, about uh, disclaimers, right? Just consider this to be a general disclaimer. This is not financial advice. This is for entertainment purposes only. Please check full disclaimer in the YouTube notes below. But I am excited, right? I, I mentioned Ewan Downey is with me here today. Ewan is an accomplished company builder and entrepreneur with more than 25 years experience in the mining sector. In his extensive career, Mr. Downey has participated in several gold and base metal discoveries and has been awarded accolades to reflect the success, including the 2003 recipient of the PDAC Prospector of the Year Award. Ewan, I appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on my show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, excellent. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So, you know, nowhere, nowhere else like the start to begin. Uh, nowhere else to begin like the start, I suppose. But maybe, do you mind just filling us in on your history and maybe how did you start out in the sector? Uh, I started in the mining industry, basically was born into it. My father was a geologist and I, throughout my young life, moved from mining town to mining town, so to speak, and got to know the industry really from from working summer jobs in in the mining field doing various odd jobs that are that were available mostly for my father and then in university i was uh, taking business and uh, the government offered a student uh, venture loan and i applied for one of those to start my own mining business and uh, so i started a little company right out of university uh, we did service exploration for mining companies, and years later, uh, I decided that I was going to start my first public company, and that was called Wolfden Resources. Wolfden Resources was taken over in 2007 by Zinefex out of Australia. It was really a base metal company. The uh, PBAC award that you mentioned was a major discovery we made in Wolfden that ultimately resulted in the company being taken over. Uh, we spun out the gold assets at that time to create Premier Gold. Uh, Premier Gold, uh, we had up until two years ago, we were running it, which included some of the current Nevada projects. Uh, two years ago, Premier was taken over. And as part of that takeover, we spun out the Nevada assets, acquired new assets and created what is uh, now I-80 Gold. So that's kind of my my foray through the industry. Yeah, I think it's got to be the most successful spin-out of a spin-out I've seen, I guess, anyway, right? But uh, your I-80 these days. Maybe just to, to, maybe to expand a bit, I mean, do you just want to, because again, the part of this is to talk about I-80, which I think is a very exciting company and, and you have a lot of exciting projects, uh, but also, you know, more of a, also like a, an educational aspect, I suppose, for investors. Maybe do you just want to reflect on those in your earlier years? And just discuss maybe you know successes and failures that you you came through, and then also maybe more importantly than that, the lessons you learned from those experiences. I think one of the first lessons when I started a public company, my my father was I guess a bit reluctant to work with me on starting a public company because uh, I think his quote was um, "99.9% of junior mining companies fail." So that that was really the first first thing I, I found. Uh, the first project we had was an interesting showing that we discovered by prospecting. Um, we the first hole we drilled intersected economic grades. We were pretty excited, and then we drilled all around that first hole, and we didn't hit anything more economic. It was all more or less low grade material that wouldn't justify 
ever building a mine. So the first prop property failed pretty quickly. And oh. we had to make another acquisition of property and properties. And uh, through the years, we, we did various projects, most of which didn't work out. Um, and then we, my father was uh, one of the, the chief uh, geologists at, at Kennecott, which is part of Rio Tinto. And, and uh, we approached them about a project they had in the Arctic. And it was, it was an existing deposit. So instead of looking for a new deposit, it had uh, three known deposits on the property. And we thought, well, at least if we make this acquisition, we'll have actually a, a tangible asset. We will have metal in the ground. And, uh, and that was a kind of our first foray into making acquisitions from bigger companies who often hold large land packages or significant land packages in various uh, significant camps, but uh, really don't do work on them. They just sit on them. And it was that property that we did a geophysical, airborne geophysical survey, identified a pretty major target uh, that we drilled and we discovered what was called the um, the West Zone that was in, I guess, in that year, I think that was in 2000, 2001, uh, would have been one of the biggest discoveries of the year in the mining sector. So um, and since then, we we acquired what is now our Cove property from um, Victoria Gold and Newmont. We acquired our autoclave facility from Nevada Gold Mines. We acquired uh, the Ruby Hill and Granite Creek projects from Waterton. So we've really used the acquisition strategy to acquire known projects that put us ahead of the curve instead of saying, hey, we got a showing or we got an airborne anomaly. We're going to build a company on this showing because I think I found out early on that more often than not, like my father said, the projects don't work. If if mining was easy, there'd be mines all over the place. <laughs> yeah. I and mean, there's a couple of different threads that I would be that I would want to pursue with you. I think though maybe the where you had started there, that idea of coming into this sector knowing eyes wide open that you're going to probably have more failures and successes but it's acquiring the knowledge acquiring the contacts acquiring the understanding so that your 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 hit rate exceeds your your fail rate i suppose right so that you can make the make a make a go of it um idea yeah, i want to talk about i80 because i think you know you and i had a decent chat here a couple of days ago and kind of one of the narratives for me that emerged was understanding you know not all developers are equal understanding that, that the 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 details the, the devil's in the details i suppose right in terms of how to assess and analyze development companies specifically which is kind of where we're going with i80 here today but before we maybe jump into that do you want to talk about i80 rightly kind of say i said kind of flippantly but you know a spin out of a spin out but it, it's always it's obviously for anybody who knows it is a very strong story do you just want to talk about i80 i suppose in terms of how it came to be Sure. It was the, we were actually planning to do the spin out of I-80 before the takeover premiere. So we had embarked on um, spinning out the Nevada portfolio that we had within Premier. Premier, we had an operating mine, the Mercedes mine in Mexico, and we had the very large uh, Greenstone project in Northwestern Ontario. Uh, there was a joint venture partnership Um that project is now in construction by Equinox, who took us over. So it, it's a very large operation. It's a project we acquired from Barrick um, back in 2007 for $3 million. 
and is now a one and a half billion dollar construction project. So I think it was a pretty big success story in my career, taking it from uh, a project that was a historic mine into uh, what is is going to be a major open pit operation. Um, so as we were building out that company, uh, we had some challenges with our joint venture partner. Um, we were actually in court and the project was stalled and we were, we'd just been negotiating to get the autoclave facility that we now have from Nevada Gold Mines. And we thought that creating a, a US only gold producer uh, based solely in Nevada was would be a very strong company in the future. And especially with the fact that we were going to own an autoclave, an autoclave would allow us to process ore. So we have our own facility to process um, gold mineralization. And, and often those to construct these facilities cost in the billions of dollars. So like the Greenstone mine at Equinox is building, but this was an opportunity to acquire an existing permitted built facility. And we're just looking to restart it uh, for the purposes of our projects. We are underground on our Granite Creek project, which is the first of our underground mining operations we're working on building. We are underground now and drilling underground, getting ready uh, the Cove project to be our, our, our what will actually be our third project that we actually expect to bring online. And we're just finishing the permitting to go underground at Ruby Hill. So in 2024, we expect to have three underground projects underway. So it's a pretty, pretty large endeavor, but these are known, very high quality, very high grade deposits that are all open for expansion. And once we come out of this on in the next several years, as we build out these projects, we're expecting to be the largest U.S. only, so pure play U.S. gold producer. And uh, we trade on the New York and the uh, Toronto Stock Exchange. So uh, being on the New York, we're really focusing on the, the U.S. investor and the fact that we will become the largest gold producer based entirely in the United States. And also with the fact that our company has over 14 and a half million ounces in gold resources. So we're not just starting out with a little deposit. We have very significant asset behind us, and that will lead to hopefully decades of production going forward. Yeah, 14 and a half million ounces is nothing to to sneeze at. Um, you know, you 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 have obviously articulated well that you have a history of success in this industry. And I did I thought that would that tail it kind of connects back nicely to our, our previous point is that, you know, if you can find individuals, and this is part of it as an investor, you know, don't try too hard trying to reinvent the wheel. You know, if you have if there are people that you're aware of in the industry, such as yourself, that that have a long history of success. You know, don't don't try to outsmart yourself or outsmart the market. Sometimes it makes sense just to to follow winners, right? And then I think that obviously you have a track record that speaks to that. Um, I, yeah, you certainly have in terms of I eighty. It's ambitious, but it's based on a lot of a heck of a lot of knowledge and a heck of a lot of certainties, right? We we kind of talked about again off air previously that the uncertainties are what kind of can sink projects or the the question marks or the unknown unknowns. I think that's Ashcroft from twenty years ago that said that, but. Um, yeah, that those are where you 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 find your money and make your money. Um, but I guess why don't I ask you about you know you're you're kind of nosing into you know giving us a pitch on I eighty. It's a great story. It's a compelling story. Maybe you know do you want to just kind of give us a, your traditional pitch and bring up your slideshow if you like? Uh, yeah. So looking at a few slides, I think you look at our uh, front page of our corporate presentation. We're a made in the USA company. 
we are an explorer, we're a developer, and we're a producer. So we are a gold producer, and we should see significant uh, increase in our, our production over the next several years. Um, look, just go through a few uh, few key slides in terms of pure play U.S. companies. There's only three of us that are purely focused on production of gold in the United States. We are the largest of those three, and we expect through our production growth to be significantly larger in terms of market cap in the future. We operate 100% in Nevada. Uh, Nevada is, uh, according to the Fraser Institute, which does an annual ranking of uh, countries and states, et cetera, for mining attractiveness. Nevada is ranked number one in both investment attractiveness and policy perception. So we are in what I consider to be the safest jurisdiction for mining in the world. We've assembled a tremendous team. Our president, Chief Operating Officer Matt Geely, was formerly the executive general manager of the Cortez District. That's the second largest mine of uh, Nevada gold mines, the Barrick Newmont Joint Venture in Nevada. Andy Cole, who works with our group, was formerly the general manager of Gold Strike, the largest of the Nevada operations. So, and behind them, we built a tremendous team. We operate 100% in uh, North Central Nevada, where the Carlin and Battle Mountain trends occur. These trends are, are likely the most productive gold district anywhere in the world. All the blue dots are, are, are the Nevada gold mines operations. They produce over 3 million ounces of gold from this picture. I-80 is the second largest holder of gold and silver resources in north central Nevada. So this picture and in the next several years, we expect to be the second largest producer. We have two existing processing facilities in the state. And as I mentioned, in all categories, we have uh, over 14 and a half million ounces of gold in resource, which puts us in the top three in the United States um, and top three in Nevada. We have uh, more gold resources uh, than large companies like Kinross, Anglo Gold, um, SSR Mining, Core. And we have significant upside potential. We are, are advancing uh, the discovery we made at Granite Creek called the South Pacific Zone to development. It's a very high-grade discovery we made only about uh, two years ago, less than two years ago. And from discovery to actually producing out of that zone, we expect to be just over two years. Uh, we also last year discovered a high-grade zone at uh, Gold Zone at Ruby Hill called the 428 zone that we're not even drilling right now uh, because we made such a significant polymetallic, that's a, a lead zinc discovery called Hilltop at our Ruby Hill project that is really a focus for us going forward. Our grades, especially our underground grades, rank amongst the highest to find of any gold deposit in North America, especially development stage projects. Two of our three projects are uh, have resources in excess of 10 grams per ton. And gold mines, underground gold mines in excess of 10 grams per ton are actually pretty rare. Uh, the Granite Creek operation right now is the first one we're ramping up. We are underground at Cove. And next we expect to begin development at Ruby Hill. And ultimately these three underground mines will feed one processing complex. So it's kind of a hub and spoke model. And our five-year target is to have production in excess of 400,000 ounces a year, whereas this year we're only going to see about 30,000. So very significant 
growth in our production going forward. As I mentioned, one thing that I think gives us a competitive advantage in the state is the fact that we have process existing processing facilities. So it, it makes the transition from explorer developer to producer much easier than you typically find. And this site also includes an autoclave, which is a, a very rare processing because it processes refractory oil, which is when you have gold encapsulated in sulfides. And there's only three companies in the United States that have this type of facilities. Um, and we're one of those three companies. So to me, that's what the big competitive advantage that I-80 has in the market. Uh, Ruby Hill also has a processing facility. We have a major open pit project uh, that we're looking at in the future. We've got a, a refractory underground deposit called Ruby Deeps that we're advancing. We made the hilltop discovery. And recently, we took over our next door neighbor, Paycor, to acquire their FAD deposit, which is an extremely high-grade polymetallic project immediately to the south of our, our company. Um, we're de defining multiple zones of high-grade mineralization. Uh, just a few examples. We, in the upper hilltop zone, we get up to 60 grams per ton gold, 908 grams per ton silver, and in other holes, up to nearly 40% lead zinc. So it's extremely high-grade material. Uh, the value of the rock, in situ value of the rock, is often in the thousands of dollars per ton, which is uh, almost unheard of in our industry. And every deposit we have discovered so far along Hilltop is still open for expansion. So we are just, just really started this discovery, and we think it's going to uh, yield positive results for a long, long time. The major thing we're working on here at Ruby Hill is putting in the underground infrastructure to mine both gold. So the Ruby Deeps and 426 zones are gold and base metals, the Blackjack, Hilltop, uh, Lower East and Upper Hilltop zones are all, um, and FAD are all polymetallic base metal deposits. So this will be an, an underground operation that we build out of the bottom of the uh, pit to define mineralization that depth. Uh, Granite Creek is our most advanced project. Just like we're looking to do at Ruby Hill, we have two portals out of the bottom of the pit. Uh, this is a historic pit. We're actually looking in the future to have a pit expansion here, but that's not a near-term target for us. Uh, Granite Creek is situated right beside Turquoise Ridge and Twin Creeks that you see here on the, the current slide. Turquoise Ridge is the third largest of Nevada gold mines operations. Uh, between Twin Creeks and Turquoise Ridge, these mines have about 50 million ounces of production and resource. And we sit right along the same structure to the south. And we have both open pit, very high open pit grades at 1.4 grams MNI and 10.4 grams MNI in our underground deposit. We have developed this underground project we are mining currently on uh, a couple of the levels, and what we're working on is driving the infrastructure to depth to access the South Pacific Zone discovery we made. And the, the South Pacific Zone is wide open. You can see the two step-out holes along strike here at depth are 10 and 15.7 grams oh. per ton gold, completely open. Uh, the, some of the deeper holes beneath these zones are 17 grams and 63 gram material. This deposit is completely open for expansion. It's fully permitted. It's in operation. 
uh, very high grade, and we expect it to be a cornerstone asset for our company for, for many years to come. Um, then the second mine we're developing is Cove. This is a picture of the underground development. This was essentially a discovery or a reinterpretation that led to the discovery of a, a very significant deposit uh, that we made uh, in Premier, and we're now building it. So one of those proud moments as a, as a developer when you take something from a conceptual idea to production is, mm -hmm. is pretty rewarding. Um, we're drilling from underground. It's a, it's a basically a fat, flat line deposit and represents one of the highest grade development stage projects in North America. Um, has a grade of almost 11 grams per ton. And our drill program that we're carrying out is uh, demonstrating grades uh, in excess of this, uh, this grade uh, regularly. And we expect that this is actually one day going to be the major operation but of the three project this is the third one we expect to come online even though it's the second one we've put in underground infrastructure we're drilling from underground by the time we complete the delineation program complete the permitting and then build it it's actually the third one that we expect to come online uh, but while i say that we also expect that this is going to be the highest grade of our three operations so kind of building up to get to the best mine being third. And I, I think that's probably the best way to leave this uh, presentation-wise is just to, uh, I, I got to highlight kind of our three key projects. And, and it's really the grade and the infrastructure that makes our company stand out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that little whirlwind tour. Is, yeah, I'm going to try to follow up on a couple of things here just for taking notes as you speak. I mean, what, first of all, I mean, any one of those projects would be something that a little microcap would be hanging their hat on and getting all over the news with trying to, trying to trumpet those results. I mean, the, the, the grade and the, the, the size and the grade that you have is impressive, I think, objectively, right? I mean, that's, it's pretty exciting. 10 grams per ton underground mine, and you have, you know, two or three of those. Um, I guess this is, yeah, you know, we're going to develop this as we go, as we transition out of talking about I-80 and just talking about, uh, you know, investing in, in general. But, I, you know, I, I, you know, in terms of the Lausanne curve, I like that orphan period of development. That I, I find that that's my preference to just the, 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 the wild west of, of pre-discovery exploration. I just think that there's too many, again, unknown unknowns. Too many question marks and not enough data to make meaningfully informed decisions as an investor. Uh, but when you get into where you know projects, I don't think necessarily I eighty is going to have much of an orphan period. It seems like you have quite a bit of interest, right? But that 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 second armpit, I think, is where more meaningful knowledge can be applied and more meaningful understanding of the of the mining process can help uh, reveal to you superior choices in your investing. I suppose, right? I mean, you are already, as you mentioned you're already producing it's kind of a proof of concept production but you're already you're already mining mining precious metals mining gold is that correct yes we um we're we're taking the development and the production scenario somewhat differently than a lot of companies do um i think we talked about it in our discussion uh, yesterday the day before that we have seen failures of companies who have gone from explorer to producer um one recent one is Pure Gold in the Red Lake camp, who had what appeared to be a high-grade project. They went underground, and it, it wasn't quite what they thought from the surface drilling. And another project in, in Nevada is uh, First Majestic acquired the um, Jared Canyon mine 
from Sprott, and they recently announced that they shut it down. Uh, mainly, um, they had some there's some issues with uh, deeper water that they hadn't properly dealt with. The grades are, you know, I don't want to knock the project, but the grades are are suspect at about, you know, five six grams underground, uh, which is is fairly good grade, but not great grade. And um, it was quite deep. The infrared to get to the where they were mining, it was a significant distance because the mine has been in production on and off for decades. So from where you go underground to where you get to the deposits a long ways away. So as we build out I-80, we we talk, we had a big discussion internally about how do we ensure that we don't fail. And not failing is when you do develop a mine is making sure the mine works. So while we're producing some gold out of Granite Creek, we haven't yet announced a, a formal production decision, so to speak. And that's because, as you said, we're we're doing proof of concept mining. And that's where we know we have a deposit. It's drilled from surface. It looks really good. We went underground. We started developing multiple zones. And one of those zones, we found the ground conditions were such that we couldn't, likely can't mine it profitably. So we abandoned that part of the deposit and had to drive the decline deeper into what we call the OG zone. And we just mined the first full two levels out of that. And that allows us to do the reconciliation work, compare what we drilled from underground and what we modeled to what we actually mined and how, and is it working? And, and are the ground conditions sufficient to mine? Uh, so we're doing this, but, uh, and proving that this mine will work before we make a formal decision. And next week, actually, we expect to have a, an update on that project program. So our timing is is kind of perfect. Um, but it's it's really trying to make sure that we know what we're dealing with. We can do a, an economic scenario based on real data. This is the mining method we're going to use. This is the grade we're getting out of the, the mine project. Now let's put that in an economic model. Does that work? for a long term to justify being an actual mining operation. So it, it is very different than a lot what a lot of companies do. It's actually quite a bit more capital intensive up front, but it's less capital intensive at the back end because a lot of the infrastructure is already put in under the exploration phase. And um, but I, I do think that that's uh, something that will ensure that I-80 is a makes a successful transition from explorer to developer to producer, whereas we've seen a lot of companies go bankrupt and go to zero on trying to do this. So really just trying to, to be really mindful of the fact that finding a mine is very difficult, permitting a mine is very difficult, and then building it and mining it is even more difficult. It's not an easy industry. Um, and if you're going to be successful at doing it like companies like Agnico or Kirkland Lake uh, Gold, which was taken over by uh, Agnico, uh, even Agnico itself, they they were companies who successfully started up operations and grew from there. And that's exactly the recipe we're trying to follow is uh, what Agnico really, that's that's kind of our model company is who, who do you want to be? For us, it would be we want to be the quality of operator is what Agnico is. 
I think you've articulated that well. And, and I want to talk about other advantages that IED has, infrastructure, location, permitting, all these things that you you, you have that works to your benefit. But I think you're, you know, you're, you're articulating this well right now. And maybe this is an opportunity just to, to ask you to continue with this, right? This is, again, prior conversation we had, you know, not all developers are created equal and, and, and there are better and worse or, you know, more efficient and less efficient ways to develop a project and try to make it mine ready. Um, do you mind maybe just as a you know a chance to kind of simultaneously toot your own horn, but also maybe to provide some educational perspective here? Do you mind just kind of de- kind of developing that further, right? Like, what are you doing right? I suppose is maybe just a really blunt way to ask it, right? But I mean, what you know, can you just continue on? And you've already been been exploring this, but tell us more about what your process is in terms of its deliberateness, in terms of its intentionality, and why it re- helps to reduce risk. Uh, I, I think one of the key things we do is we we realize that mines are are finite, so you can never stop exploring at a mine. Ultimately, mines uh, end because you run out of uh, ore, and if at that point, if you don't have another deposit waiting or have discovered something new or acquired something, your company will then go to zero uh, because you don't have anything left. So it's always making sure that we're always drilling. And I think a lot of projects, when people develop them, they develop the projects with uh, not enough understanding of what they're dealing with. Uh, One, maybe they didn't do enough drilling. So we see drilling, uh, the deposit, defining it properly as being a real key first step in making sure we, we succeed. Secondly, is where possible, putting in development and actually doing your test mining to, like I just said, ensuring that what we've drilled can actually be transitioned into something that can be profitably mined. Because like at Pure Gold, they found that the ore body was extremely erratic and they couldn't stay uh, on the Madison mine. They couldn't stay on the ore body. Um, Rubicon also in Red Lake found that there's a lot of faulting, so difficult to follow the ore body. So really understanding it in great detail before you actually make the mine, I think, is is the key thing that we're trying to do that a lot of companies don't. And like I said, it's a bit more capital intensive up front, but it should lead to uh, enhanced success in the future. And we're trying to build a company that we're saying in four or five years is going to be a mid-tier producer. So our market cap should be at that time billions. Uh, compared to where it is today. Um, As an example, we expect to be about the same size as Alamos. And Alamos Gold currently has a market cap of about 6 billion, where we're about 800 million Canadian. So I think there's significant upside as we grow and develop our company. Uh, But I think it's really to, to make this work it's doing all the right work. And I'm not a mining engineer. I'm not a professional miner. I'm, I won't tell anybody that I'm the guy who's going to be successful at building a mine, but I have Matt Gilly and Andy Cole and uh, Todd Esplin and, and J- people like that in our team, John Laird. These guys are very proven mine developers in the state of Nevada. And so they know the regulators, they know um, what ground conditions you you might encounter as you go underground on these type of deposits. Um, And they've successfully started and operated mines in the state. So it's really building out that team that is going to ensure 
or help to ensure that we are successful in the future. Um, really, it's not just one person, it's an entire team. It's having uh, guys like our, you know, a, a great CFO who can uh, keep us on par. When do we need money? Where do we need money? Um, corporate development guys like Matt Golat, who uh, works with me the most in kind of developing the company, who's uh, very strong in his role. So it's 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 really a team effort. And it goes right down to the people who answer the phone in the head office. They're like everybody, every person's important in our organization. Uh, but it is a tough industry. Uh, I'll use Greenstone as an example. We acquired the Greenstone or what we called Hard Rock in Premier from Barrick in 2007. It's in construction today and it should be producing gold in 2024. So that's 17 years from first drilling to production. Um, that's how difficult this industry is. And with the infrastructure we have in place, that will, we expect to significantly shorten the timeline for us to achieve it from an example like that as Greenstone is. Yeah, again, lots of great points you're making. It's one thing that I, I sometimes overlook to talk about, but I, I mean, management is absolutely crucial for me. I mean, you know, betting on the jockey, I think, does better will do you better in the long run than, than not, I suppose. Um, but the one thing I wanted to talk about, you talk about the sort of exhaustive approach you're doing in terms of your upfront knowledge and, and that upfront expenses. But there's a, there's a pithy comment from, from Rick Rule. He says that, you know, if you, if you take away half my upside, but get rid, of, get rid of all my downside, I'll take that deal every single time. And I think, again, that's that sort of attitude and mentality that people have to have in this sector where those, those, those you know, Casey at the bat, I guess, right, those grand slam swings, don't necessarily do you a lot of good, right? Having the data to actually make informed decisions is critical, is my point, right? Um, I, I want to talk about, yeah, I mean, there's a kind of a little small laundry list here, right? I mean, lots of reasons why people should like uh, IED story. I mean, permitting. I mean, the permitting infrastructure location is kind of what I have left I would like to talk to you about. So you obviously already have quite a few permits at hand if you're already, you know, proof of concept production is happening. So maybe you want to talk about where you are at the permitting process, but also maybe dis discuss why Nevada is is friendly when it comes to permitting as well in terms of the length of time it takes to achieve permits. Uh, well, our Granite Creek project is fully permitted. That's why we're doing the proof of concept mining. The uh, declines are in. We're doing the ventilation. All the power's in the roads. Um, so it's it's fully permitted. Uh, it was essentially fully permitted when we acquired it from Waterton. The um, the Ruby Hill project is going through the permitting process right now. When we acquired uh, the Ruby Hill project, the open pit was just finished being mined. So they just loaded the last of the um, material on the heap leach pad. And some of our production is from that residual leaching. Um, and it's the underground deposit below that pit that is of our interest. So the uh, previous owner didn't have an autoclave to process this refractory type material. And uh, we acquired it to ensure that we can fill our facility. So, uh, but we do have to get our permits to go underground given it's a, it, 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 we do have a mining permit for the property. It's an amendment to the current mining permit. So it should be pretty standard, take about six, eight months to get that permit in place to go underground. Cove, we we took through the permitting process in Premier, and we are we did build the underground as I eighty. So that underground decline I showed was constructed by our company, and we're now drilling underground, 
getting what I think are some of the best results in all of United States in the drill program we're doing from underground right now. I urge people to take a look at our Cove press releases we've been putting out because the grades and wins are just outstanding. And it's really uh, got us buoyant at looking at our future. If that was a new discovery in the market by a company that just had that asset, their market cap would probably be bigger than ours. So, um, so we have these three projects and Nevada is is a state where I believe the state makes more tax, generates more tax income from mining than it does from casinos, though casinos mm. in Nevada are better known. In fact, if Nevada were a country, I believe it would be the fifth largest gold producing country in the world. Um, but it's, it's really just a state in the United States. So it's very pro mining state. Um, which allows the permitting process to go ahead. And that's that's pretty unique because there's a lot of states in the United States that have moratoriums against mining. So everybody likes what mining gives you, metal, lights, <laughs> cutting, uh, you know, everything is made from mining. But it's like, don't do it here. Nevada is definitely not that. And in, it, it's such a favorable state for mining that it is consistently ranked number one in the world uh, jurisdiction. Um, so, so permitting can be a big, big hurdle for projects. There are projects, uh, I think Donlan is a good example that has been trying to permit for well over a decade now. Uh, there's a lot of news you see about companies about, oh, we had a problem, uh, you know, our permits being delayed because here's what we're doing. You constantly see that in the industry. Um, some places are much better than others. It took us at least five years to permit Greenstone from when we decide we wanted to build it. Uh, Canada has can be quite difficult in, in many places now compared to previously. So uh, permitting is one of the biggest, I think, risks in a mining company. Uh, once you find a really good deposit, the next biggest hurdle is the two biggest hurdles from there are permitting and then financing risk. So those are the, the two main things that you have to look for after. And, and we think that the, or the reason we operate only in Nevada as I-80 is because we want to make sure we we're operating in a place that, that likes us working there. Um, the, every community we work in essentially the only reason there's a community there is because of the mining operations in the area. So working in a, a place like Nevada is uh, a, as a an executive of building a company and having worked in Mexico and in, in Canada um, and actually uh, looked or been on boards with companies who are in even other countries, just seeing how favorable Nevada is compared to other countries just made us say that we're going to name our company after the highway that runs through all these mines in northern Nevada. And we're going to uh, focus on deposits that are close to that highway I-80 and Interstate 80. So hence our name. Hmm. Yeah, again, lots that, I, lots that I'd love to talk about here. I mean, the one that maybe I will just to, to ex expand on is this you know this permitting idea and and the, the 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 barriers and roadblocks that go up and you know and and some of them are I mean I will would argue are are necessary and defensible, but I think what happens is you have uh, in a North American population that like you say like relies so intimately and innately on mining in our, in our kind of our, our our modern world, but 
you know, it's kind of like a, almost like a continental nimbyism, right? That we, we don't really want to see that production happening in our backyard or in our country. But I mean, I'm, I argue passionately, and this is something that I talk about with my friends and my family and they get, you know, their eyes glaze over kind of thing. Right. But I mean, you look at like, like nickel production in Indonesia is catastrophic. Right. And then you look at, and I, I hope that, I mean, this is from a Canadian's perspective, they, they're talking about streamlining permitting and trying to make this go faster. And, you know, like, we'll see how it goes, I guess, as it develops. But I mean, it seems like the government is starting to understand that, that there, uh, we do need to see more efficiencies in that process. But I, I always talk to my to my people around me. You know, look at what Indonesia is doing to to extract nickel when Canada has massive nickel deposits. But there are all these barriers to actual production. And but we also have the highest environmental and labor standards in the world. Do you want to see nickel that comes from an absolute catastrophe environmentally that is in Indonesia, or do you want to see it mined in a reasonable, responsible way where local stakeholders? have a say in how production actually happens and benefits them. Right. And so, I mean, I'm not sure if I have a question for you here, but I just think there was a kind of a, a topic of conversation that is something that I talk about in my own time quite a bit as well. So. Yeah, definitely. It's um, it, it, we rely on it. We wouldn't be, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation if it wasn't for mining um, my computer, your computer, um, all made from mining the wires that light up your house, copper wire. Um, and I think a lot of the permitting risks is created by NGOs, and and I'm sure they have their place. There's people trying to protect uh, pristine environments, which I I believe is truly important. But if if a, if you have good regulations to mine, like Canada, and the United States do, compared to Indonesia or China or or Russia, who have much less regulations, you're actually getting a much safer or much more environmentally friendly product, and you know, one one thing that really bothers me is, uh, you know, we 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 as mining companies sometimes get inversion from various environmental groups, and and if we we ever have, and we've rarely had, fortunately, aversion to what we're doing. But if you do, or somebody's questioning what you're doing or complaining, I've met people in a restaurant who say, "Oh, you're mining. You're a terrible person." And I just say, look, tell, show me one thing in this room that is not created by mining. You have a gold ring on. Uh, mm. How do you think you have that gold ring? Um, the people, the NGOs who show up at uh, companies, AGMs and stuff in Toronto or New York, wherever they may be, it's, it's how did you guys get here? Did you walk? No, they came in a plane, took a taxi. Um, so they're complaining about what they're using. And and but it is it is one of those risks and and being a being in places that favor what you're doing makes makes your job a lot easier to hopefully be successful at achieving the permit. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, it's the necessity is is obviously without question. I mean, I think anybody, any reasonable person understands intimately that, of course, I mean, we would be to the Stone Age and further back without it. Uh, it it's it's the, the manner and the method with which the production occurs. And again, I think there's a huge point in terms of you know western jurisdictions tier one jurisdictions that that's a huge advantage i mean this is and this is of course sidestepping all these conversations around you know global geopolitics right now being a little bit iffy in terms of regional you know the the shrinking back into regions right i don't want to say cold war 2.0 but you know that maybe we are starting to see the 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 benefits of onshoring these things right so why don't I just take this as an opportunity to to transition to maybe more of a macro chat here? I mean, just you know, super boilerplate question here. But I mean, are you bullish, bearish, or neutral right now? For general markets, we'll say initially, uh, in, uh, kind of in the short term or near term. 
Uh, for the general market, I, I'd say I'm probably pretty bearish. Um, the government's increasing of interest rates, I think when governments take this stance of going from, which they shouldn't have done, excessive easing mm. for so long, free money for so long, had to come back to roost. Uh, it's a problem. You know, you look at Canada with our prime minister and our minister of finance, they're uh, trained as a, a, a teacher and a, and a journalist. They're not econo economic people. I don't think they understand at all what it takes to really be a successful country. And I'm sorry to throw that political thing out, but it's 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 very difficult to go from just giving away money to then all of a sudden tightening so fast, raising interest rates, which has had a temporary effect of propping up the US dollar, affected gold negatively, but gold's holding up extremely well in this environment. And that's because the macro background, I think, isn't there. There isn't the support for these raising interest rates. I just read that over uh, now about 30% of buildings in Canada are empty. And that is increasing as, as companies can't afford to build because they just can't afford the interest rates. When people redo their mortgages and they they can't afford their house house in the housing market, they they lose their homes or they have to give up their homes. I All of that is still to come in my view. So I think that is going to really punish the market. You're going to see places like Brookfield who rely on full occupancy of their buildings coming into some financial, I wouldn't say difficulties, but they're not going to be generating the profits they did before. People won't be buying their luxury cars as much as they were because things are loans and mortgages are so much more expensive. So this takes time to really dig in. People have a five-year mortgage. They they might not renew their mortgages for two years from now. So they won't really feel that pain for another two years. So I think this is going to be a lagging effect. And um, and for that, I believe that the market's going down. And it's one of the primary reasons you you own gold. It's a, it's a currency that is, has no political attachment. It's not a, it's, it trades all over the world, but there's no, it's not attached to any one country. Um, it, it, there's no printing press. You just can't print gold and say, hey, here's more, more gold, everybody. Um, so there's a lot of reasons that gold is a, a currency that should be held by people. Is It's a currency that's increased its buying power over the last 20 years, going from essentially $250 an ounce now to near $2,000. Uh, so it's steadily gone up over tw uh, the last two decades to sa save your purchasing power. And if you look at the value of a $100 bill and you take it, what did that buy you in 2000 compared to what that same $100 bill buys you today? That purchasing power is decreased significantly under... Under our liberal government, we've seen housing prices double. We've seen food prices double. So just in the last eight years, we've seen the purchasing power of our money, so to speak, cut in half. And in that same period, the gold price has increased for, uh, in the last eight years from probably around 1300 to where it is today. So the purchasing power of gold has gone up. And, and that's why I think investors should own gold and gold and or gold stocks. And Ooh. I think that's my my big pitch for there you go. <laughs> what I think about the market, but why I think gold price is going to going to go up. And as soon as the 
the government starts to ease again when they recognize, oh, maybe maybe what we did with these interest rates was a little strong. We've already seen banks collapse. You know, what's next to fall, especially if they continue to raise interest rates? And when that happens, I, I see gold, in my view, the gold price is going to go up at least 25% in the next 12 months. And the stocks will eventually catch a bid because of late, people have been jump chasing the Teslas and the Apples. These these companies trade at price earnings in the hundreds, and whereas mining companies trade at five times earnings, six times earnings. They're, I'd say, a much safer investment, but it it doesn't have the same public euphoria that uh, these tech stocks and now AI stocks do. Mm-hmm. Just waiting for the cycle to return, right? Yeah, empires will rise and fall, but they're all built on gold, right? Isn't that the lesson from history, right? That gold yes. is a surprising and surprising in its constancy. Um, so this is a good point. Yeah, another good transition here. I mean, yeah, gold has been flirting with all-time highs the last three years, right? It comes up and 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 kind of kisses it, and kind of recedes back down to a couple hundred bucks. But you know, and so traditionally, you know, the traditional knowledge, the traditional uh, uh, wisdom is that you know, explorer developer stocks are kind of leveraged exposure to their underlying metal right or that you know that they that they should be when things are good they should be doing great right but that's not really what we're seeing right now right i mean you have near all-time high prices in gold but like you said yourself right like the the what they're the the what they're trading at is peanuts right that there are like deep deep discounts to companies that are just absolute money printers in terms of like they're they're all in sustaining costs versus the price of gold that they're that company and producers are doing credible, but they're not really seeing market uh, the market respond or the market seems to kind of go ho-hum. You have explorers who, I mean, in, 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 a, in, a, in a healthier market, I mean, I've seen some, you know, wonderful assays. I mean, I'm thinking copper, nickel, not just gold right now, but get zero credit or zero permanent re-rating, just kind of a few days of, of interest and it just sags back down. I mean, what the heck's going on here? Do you want to maybe try to discuss why that's happening, even though we're at all-time highs for gold? I think it's really the narrative. I think a lot of gold companies and gold producers don't do a good enough job promoting ourselves hmm. or promoting the commodity, the base. We don't get out there enough and explain to people why it's so important. I think especially the younger generation, they they I think they take it for granted that they've got lights and cars and gas. Um and cryptocurrencies took a bit away of the i think the thunder people investing in another alternate currency other than gold um but now we're seeing regulations being put on those and i think and and they're they're going to come off and and cryptocurrencies aren't rare uh, you and i could get off this call and decide we're going to start a cryptocurrency um so anybody can make their own money if you if you want to own cryptocurrency but not you and I can't just sit here, get off the phone, and say, "Hey, let's make gold." <laughs> uh, it's it's very difficult. So it's it's a currency that I don't I think is highly underappreciated. Um, you know, people who are just graduating university, they're not like the elder generation from Germany that saw their money go to zero. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's just a it's us getting out there and talking about it. And another thing, I think. You know, even us that we do, because it's almost that the market's trying to make you do it, is always talk backwards gold. So you do a feasibility study. Well, we did ours at $1,650 an ounce, not at $1,950. And it's like, well, why not? Gold's not trading at $1,650. It's $1,950. And by doing that, I think we're almost telegraphing that we as companies think that the gold price is going to go down, whereas I believe the gold price is going up. But 
if I publish a feasibility study using $2,500 gold, because I think it's going there, people say, oh, you're crazy. So I, I think it's the narrative. The narrative has to change. Uh, the spot price has been very strong in an environment when it shouldn't be. And um, and and all commodities, it's it's defending why you mine in Canada. It's defending why you mine in the United States. Your example of Indonesia is a great one. Look at look at some of the mines you see around the world. Where you see thousands of people in a pit, and some of them are kids carrying out ba ba baskets of rock. Yeah. Um, that's not allowed here in Canada. That's not allowed in the United States. So I I think that. It's promoting our industry. We can do this safely. We can do this in an environmentally friendly manner. And we do benefit society. And it's really making sure people understand what benefit we give to society. That's uh, well said. I, you know, I think it is, it, it, to me, it seems so simple. And I, I, I don't come from a geology background. And I'm, I'm not, you know, my, I'm not a family of miners. I come to this as, as, as someone who was not kind of steeped in it. But I guess that's where I started from is that, you know, step one, it's a necessity. And then you work backwards from there. Well, how do we do it in the most sustainable and most sustainable way? How do we do it in terms of best practice? And I, I just see like, clear advantages for, for tier one jurisdictions. And, and I think that, I mean, you, you make a good point there. It's almost as if the industry has a guilty conscience and is always kind of this like, yeah, but, or that, that kind of this, this having to almost apologize for, for what's happening. Um, and, you know, I think like historically, there there are some some tough stories historically, right, in terms of, of how my minds conducted themselves. But this is the 21st century, the 21st century labor laws and practices. And I think that sometimes there's a disconnect between what people think it is or have an understanding of what it was versus what it could be and should be if you have stakeholder interest and government support and, 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 a, and a sincere pursuit of best practice, right? So yeah, I think that yeah, your concept or your understanding of changing the narrative or, or trying to take control of the narrative so not not just apologetic almost, but the, but that more of like trumpeting the actual benefits. I think it's a point well made. Um, yeah, no question there for you, I guess. Right? Yeah, well, yeah, I'd say that we're proud of the projects that we built. Um, we, you know, thankfully, we as a producing company from Premier to now IED have had an extremely strong safety record. Uh, mines mines aren't actually the safest places to work in the world, but very, very uh, stellar, really, safety record. We're, um, I think amongst mining companies in Nevada, we are the largest employer of women. So we are, uh, you know, we look at diversity in our workforce as a very important component. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that, that I think we can be proud of as a company. And, and I'm when I find people who are anti-mining, my my sister I'd say is a you know one of those people who is I wouldn't say totally pro-mining, but she understands that she came from a mining family too. But there's a lot of people like that. There's people who think that we're horrible people because we mine, and it's it's explaining to them why we're not horrible people. We're we're actually good people, and we do a lot of good for society, and, and even a lot of medicine. Zinc is a a, an important medicine using zinc in in medicines is is good for our health so just helping people understand that it's not all bad it's not all that big tailings dam failure that doesn't happen regularly um it, those are actually very rare occurrences deaths or uh, are rare we our standards on how we have emissions like the autoclave that we're looking to restart 
the rules have changed on what we have to do. Some of the changes we have are going to be making to it are for environmental purposes to capture more mercury, make sure we don't let any go into the environment. And it's it's really being strict on what you do. And and if people understand the measures that mining companies often go through to actually build a mine and what they do to be safe and clean, it's actually can be one of the cleaner industries out there. Yeah, no, and uh, yeah, excellent. Um, just for the interest of trying to respect your time here, I'll probably just try to transition to our final stage here. We haven't chatted about your autoclave. I mean, that's a huge get for me. And uh, you know, it's, I always look at, do companies have, are they permit ready? Is it mill ready? Do they have infrastructure? And an autoclave, for, uh, anybody who is not sure what that is, I think I would recommend you go read about them because the fact that I-80 has one is, is a, a huge boon or a huge feather in their cap. But let's just, again, out of respect to the fact that this is, you know, it's been a, a very fruitful conversation, but it's, it's turning into a lengthy one here. So um, just a few minutes here, if you don't mind, you and before I let you go, do you mind just kind of, I've got a couple of questions just around helping retail investors become better investors, right? I mean, I don't like it. Nobody likes losing their shirts. I don't think anybody in this market is or in the sector is cheering for people to go broke. It's, it is a widow maker of a sector, right? It's a very challenging sector. But there's also obviously huge rewards to be had too if you can kind of master the master the chaos. Um, and so obviously you're here representing a developer co, and this is something that I've talked about that I prefer in, in a lot of ways. Maybe do you want to talk about the core risks? Like what? How should how should investors be gauging developer co's in terms of what they're doing and if they're doing it properly? Uh, well, maybe I start with an in expiration codes, because I think a lot of the retail investment community is looking for the next expiration, the next drill hole play. Mm -hmm. And those plays are often, more often than not, very short-lived. So there's a bit of euphoria. People are falling, oh, you see this stock, you see that hole, the stock pops up and then may prop up for a while as they drill a few holes. But then ultimately it becomes kind of like us, we release stellar holes regularly and it's almost like oh yeah more good results out of i80 so that becomes the attitude towards a company um but that explorer co most more often than not ultimately turns out that they didn't find something that's going to become an economic mine so then goes to zero or they have to find something else so i like to buy drill hole plays now and then if i think i'm going to make a quick few dollars but the majority of the shareholdings I own are in companies who have real resources. They're either in the permitting stage or have been permitted. So they're mining um, because you've re reduced when you're investing in mining. You've, I think I'm reducing my risk as an investor because I do play the stock market as well. Um, I'm reducing my risk by picking companies who have real assets, who have real um the real ability to be a successful company and um and ultimately are they in a place that's going to allow it i i would say if if somebody started drilling just outside new york city and uh, got a permit to do it and hit something really good um people might say look at that hole it's and then you understood well it's five miles from downtown new york it's never going to be a mine um it's it's just trying to find a place make sure you're investing in places that favor the the industry companies who have the ability to be real success i like i think there's a lot more money to be made in our industry if you hold a stock for years than if you hold it for days so finding the companies who have 
the ability to to build out projects and not just tooting our own horn it's there's a lot of other good companies out there to invest in that are doing exactly what we're doing um lundin mining uh, gold lundin gold is a recent example of a company who bought a project from kinross and is now one of the you know stable names in our industry mm -hmm. because they did such a good job at it that's what we want to do with our company so finding the lundin golds when they're in that earlier development stage it was probably trading at two dollars now it's closer to 20 and so you see 10 times your money but it took some time but if you put your money in a bank account not too long ago you got zero and now you're getting a little bit of interest but um so i think it's just investing in companies who have good people uh operate in good jurisdictions and have done a lot of work to show that we actually have something real here and then uh I'll toot our horn having an autoclave that is a very rare processing facility because in Nevada, most of the gold mineralization, the easy oxide mineralization be mined out. And as the deposits go to depth, they turn uh, the gold is encapsulated in the sulfides. Mm. And you can't just put it through a normal mill and put cyanide on it, get your gold. You don't get it out. You have to cook the mineralization. And these type of facilities are viewed not to be the most environmentally friendly historically, even though, as I said, we're doing a lot of things so that ours will be essentially no no pollution. But um, it would be difficult, if, if not impossible, to permit one of these facilities again in Nevada. Um, so having one gives us a competitive advantage to be able to pursue deposits for hopefully decades, generations to come. I hope that IAD is a big producer in Nevada. And um, so having that type of infrastructure is is really key. Mm -hmm. So management, jurisdiction, infrastructure, things that you're maybe pointing out. Do you have any red flags? Anything that when you're looking at a project that if you see that, you just kind of you know, politely walk away? For me, it's a lot of companies when you see them release drill results, they'll have drilled 40 holes and they'll highlight four of them in the press release, but not talk about the other 36. Hmm. Um, for me, that's a big red flag is your continuity isn't there. Um, if you look at the history of I-80, we release every hole. Uh, so if we have a no significant value, we let you know that hole and significant value and hopefully we can explain why. Um, but we release every hole and we try to do it in succession. So we release hole one to 10 and we'll release all of them. And, um, and just to demonstrate, I think that just reading through what a company is doing, you can assess whether they're finding something that's continuous enough to maybe be a real deposit. So to me, that's one of the biggest red flags is companies who highlight one or two holes, but drill 20, 30. And mm -hmm. it's like, what about the rest of them? I, I can't help but ask because this just reminds me. I mean, I, I get leery when I see a really bad grade smearing. That makes me a little leery. And also when they when they report predominantly in equivalent ounces, um, those are two, not necessarily red flags, but things that make me kind of put my radar up. Is that same for you or how do you feel about those two things? Well, I, I'm, I'm okay with equivalent ounces because um, your deposit could be almost half gold, half silver. And if you're a gold company, um, you want to highlight the gold. So saying that 
the the silver in deposit X that I'm talking about is very important for it to being a mine, but you're not a silver company. And then I look at what we're doing at Ruby Hill. We have the Hilltop Fad Blackjack deposits. Those are actually base metal rich deposit. Probably the most valuable component of those deposits is lead and zinc. Um, silver is very important. Gold is probably number three. Silver is number four. But we're a gold company and we want to mine that from the same underground infrastructure that we're mining the ruby deeps gold deposit so it's a almost having a base metal and a gold mine operating together we expect to be doing that in the next four years um so how do we account for that deposit it mm -hmm. is a polymetallic deposit but we're likely going to publish that resource showing how much lead how much zinc how much silver how much gold but then have a gold equivalent mm -hmm. because we're a gold company and we want to account for those as gold ounces because the majority of the value isn't in gold in that specific deposit. So, but we want to show people that on a gold equivalent basis, we've grown our resource by hopefully X millions of ounces. So I, I'm not so against the gold equivalent. Um, I think it has a place in the industry, but um, so, but like you said, the grade smearing, if somebody hit, um, a hundred, a hundred meters of a gram, but one meter ran a hundred grams. It's like, well, that one meter had the gold and you smeared it across a hundred. Um, that to me is a big red flag. I I'd say that and lack of publishing what you actually drilled in your, uh, disclosure to me would be the two biggest red flags. Excellent. And yeah, that's a point well made about gold equivalent. It certainly has its 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 place. Uh, just sometimes you'll see, you know, polymetallic polymetallic find with, with five different metals, but all of them are sub cutoff grade. But when you glue them all together, surprisingly, it looks great, right? In terms of gold equivalents. So um, I just want to, so jurisdiction. So I'm going to guess based on your project history that tier one jurisdictions or, you know, or operating reliable jurisdictions are important to you. Um, feel free to disagree, but do you care just to discuss that in general a bit? Yeah, the the ability to permit a mine is to me one of the after uh, the, the the first big risk is being able to find and delineate what might be an economic deposit. They're very rare. Um, most projects fail. I'd say ninety nine percent of projects that get drilled ultimately fail. So the biggest risk is just actually finding a good deposit. The next one is permitting. So jurisdiction's key. Uh, like I said, there um, there are states um, that have moratoriums against mining. They may actually let you do some exploration, but they're never going to let you build a mine. So um, jurisdictional risk is big. Uh, Canada has become a very difficult place to permit because the government really doesn't support the industry enough. They, they allow there to be this sort of um, battle between mining companies and First Nations over land issues, but it's the government who allowed the mining company to explore this land. It's not, we didn't just say we're taking it. Hmm. It's the government said, you can stake this land, you can do exploration. We're going to let you build a mine, but then next thing you know, you're dealing with another community or government, so to speak, that our government says, well, you guys deal with it. And it's like, well, I can't settle your land claim issues. Um, that's between you and the First Nations, not between us. So finding a place that 
has less and less of those type of issues is good. Um, and then, you know, there are a lot of countries that you would go to, especially in Europe. And I would say a lot of European countries, it's don't even bother doing expiration because they'll never mm. let you build the mine. Mm. Um, so jurisdiction is, is key. Nevada, like I said, is consistently ranked number one. If you drive from Reno to um, Salt Lake City, uh, along Interstate 80, it is pretty rare that you won't look out your window and see a mine or an old mine. So it's a it's a very favor favorable place. And and when in a mining company cycle, you mentioned the song curve, you go from expiration success, then it's the developer phase. The longer it takes to permit, the longer you're going to stay in that downtrend, um, and then you've got to build it. So. I'd say if you're looking at a long-term investing company, you you should look at one that's that really either in the expiration phase is almost sell it in the expiration phase. And then if it is actually saying, well, now we're going to go through all the stuff, do feasibilities, and we're going to build infrastructure, but we have to permit it. I'd say for me, that would be a time when that investment's likely to go down. And um, and then it's when you do have permits and you are building, that's when your investment will go back up. So I agree with those two curves in the cycle, even though we're not seeing that big up curve lately, because the as we talked about, there hasn't been this big euphoria towards mining. But um, uh, really finding the companies who who are in the right places with uh, with especially with permits is is very important if they actually have a deposit and uh, I I'm pretty proud to say that we have four really good deposits in Nevada all of them are either fully permitted or most of the way through permitting uh, we, we have the ability to go underground we are processing material on either our heap leach pads or with Nevada gold mines soon looking to start up our own autoclave so we've i think we've put pieced together a company that is very unique in our industry and and i think still underappreciated and uh hopefully being on shows like yours helps people understand why ied should be a cornerstone investment in their portfolio hmm. well you and you, you are you've articulated your your discussion well here and i appreciate your man of uh, a lot of strong thinking and a lot of i've really enjoyed our conversation here today um, I honestly, I think you, you've probably taken me to the end here. You've kind of snuck up on me here. Uh, I think you, you did just kind of encapsulate the whole thing, a little nice little capstone conversation there, but final thought opportunity for a uh, final thoughts from you. Um, yeah, I, I'd say that, uh, um, I, I'm, I'm a big, um, I'm a big investor in mining companies. I, uh, I think that people should really look at the macro environment of what's going on governmentally, especially in North America right now, and and decide, do I really want to own these 600 times multiple companies, or should I look for an investment? And, and with the, the current policies that are being pushed, um, it's getting more difficult to be successful in, in almost any industry. Uh, so... I really think that people should should really take another look at why gold or copper or zinc or lead or nickel or uranium should be an important investment if they are going to be investing, not just putting your money in in the bank. Um, and you don't necessarily need to hire uh, a 
a fund who's just going to play your money back and forth and mm-hmm. the market goes up, it goes up, if the market goes down, it goes down, is look look for companies who do have big inherent value and have the potential to have long-term success. Um, Agnico, back when they started building uh, building out their operations, were trading at 350 Canadian a share. Today, they're trading at 60. And they did that because they successfully built and transitioned from an explorer to a producer. Lending Gold is a recent example I just gave you. And hopefully find companies that are successful at making that transaction uh, transition, making the right or making the right decision on that company as a good deposit. That should be economic. Can They can get their permits. They are going to build out because those are the companies that over several years are going to result in in multiplying your money, not just adding 10%. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think it's uh, looking at companies that have that ability, and I believe we are one of those. And so I think um, IAD should be uh, should be looked at as an investment. I'm not saying buy it if you have to buy it, but I think uh, for a long-term vision uh, of a company, there are very few like us who have the quality of assets and the quality of jurisdiction with infrastructure. Well, you and yeah, well said again. I mean, you you are a strong advocate and a strong spokesperson for this industry. And I thank you for that. And IED Gold, I think everybody, as you've as you've mentioned, it's a very compelling project, very, very compelling economics and and in a nice uh, appropriate spot for investing. That's i80gold.com, i80gold.com. Uh, Ewan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Perfect. Have a good day. You too.